You're listening to Exploring Boys Education, a monthly podcast produced by the International Boys Schools Coalition, in which we examine current issues affecting boys, teachers of boys, and boys' schools. I am Bruce Collins. Brighton Grammar School, a member school from Australia, released the position paper on positive masculinity through their Crowther Centre, which is a research hub they describe as an engine that powers school improvement. In this position paper, they define positive masculinity as the expression of attitudes and behaviours, character strengths and virtues which any gender might have, that have been embodied and enacted by males for the common good both individually and for the community. In developing a framework for positive masculinity, Brighter Grammar believe that there are two major factors to be considered, knowing and being. Knowing is about providing boys and young men, as well as their parents and teachers, with content knowledge about positive masculinity. Being is an understanding that there isn't one perfect version of a man. It's a choice, moment by moment, day by day. In the episode that follows, I speak with Christopher Rigeluth, who is a clinical psychologist and expert on boys and men's mental health, gender socialization, and adolescent masculinities. He is also the author of The Masculinity Workbook for Teens. In our conversation, Chris highlights the importance of having conversations about masculinity in current times. He unpacks what is referred to as the Guy Code and offers advice for educators and leaders in boys' schools to help their boys engage with society's gender rules and the boxes these rules create. Before I speak with Chris, however, our Executive Director, Tom Batty, joins me again to share about IBSC's many February professional development offerings in the IBSC Newsreel. Thank you, Bruce, and greetings to all. Whether willing the mercury upwards or downwards, I welcome you to our first episode of Exploring Boys Education for 2023. In January 2019, the IBSC Board of Trustees released a statement which noted that, in our schools, we strive to instill the importance of an inner life that helps boys shed societal stereotypes We provide adult role models, both men and women, who encourage boys to discover the good within themselves and recognise its desire to blossom into empathy for others and acts of service. The statement continued, noting that boys' schools create spaces where a boy might be freer to question, reflect, adjust and grow, to ask uncomfortable questions and share ideas without fearing ready judgment. Boys can explore issues of gender and sexuality and the many versions of manhood in an authentic, testing way that might not work for them in a different environment. Later in this episode, Bruce speaks with professor, author, and licensed clinical psychologist, Chris Rigeluth, to explore what is referred to as the Guy Code. Before handing back to Bruce, I'd like to highlight the IBSC programmes coming up in February and March. Firstly, I'm going to note the three IBSC online classes that start on the 6th of February. We have Better Boys, Better Men, Exploring Masculinity in Boys' Schools, 
than responsible sexual citizenship in today's world that challenges facing boys. And we have single gender education, a course for teachers new to boys schools. On February 8 and 15, clinical psychologist Andrew Fuller will share more about wellness and well-being in boys schools in an IBSC online event co-hosted by Brighton Grammar School in Melbourne, Australia. Solving the crisis of boys and men, featuring senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the influential book of boys and men, Richard Reeves, takes place on February the 13th at Montgomery Bell Academy in Nashville, Tennessee in the United States. This program can also be streamed live if you aren't able to join in person. The IBSC UK Europe Regional Conference hosted at Harrow School in the United Kingdom is on February the 22nd and focuses on how learning relationships influence well-being and boys' views of masculinity. On the 28th of February and 7th of March, IBSC will host the first of our Belonging in Boys' School series with Katie Kusner, Ethan Levine, Nike Robertson and Antoine Ramon. The focus of this online programme will be gender, identities and inclusivity in boys' schools. More information on these offerings can be found by clicking on the professional development menu of the IBSC website. I look forward to seeing many of you online or in person as you join for these offerings with colleagues from around the world. Before I hand you back to Bruce, I would like to say a big thank you to Chris Rigeluth for his willingness to share more about how he is helping boys and those who work with boys to crack the guy code. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be speaking with you today about exploring the guy code. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. I'm really looking forward to this important conversation and topic. Chris, before we dive into your thoughts about masculinity and hear your advice for educators and leaders in boys' schools, I really am fascinated to hear about why you put together the Masculinity Workbook for Teens and why this work is important for you. You know, what's what spurred this idea of a workbook like this um, as, as you wrestle through some of these issues around masculinity? Well, I'll try not to have it be too long of an answer because it could be, but, but to share a little bit from early on, which would be thinking back to my teenage years, at some point, you know, during the teenage years, probably around 10th grade or 11th grade, I just started to become aware for myself that all of the peer pressure wasn't feeling good, wasn't, wasn't making me happy. Uh, that all of the pressure for guys to be a certain way, um, you know, with regard to sports and toughness and other things, proving themselves heterosexually with girls, um, just wasn't, wasn't working for me. And so I started to withdraw a bit at that time, um, withdraw socially, um, and, 
Right. I wasn't like speaking out against it as a teenager, right? I more was having this own internal awareness and just feeling like, you know what, this stuff just like isn't feeling right. And and I still was playing sports and enjoy sports, but there were just things that I was starting to question for myself. And then in college, I took a course called Gender, Race, and the Politics of Difference. And I probably took it when I was about 20. Um, and I walked into that course and just judging from appearances, there were probably about 30 students in that room and it didn't appear that there were any other males Uh, or students who identified uh, as men. Uh, And the course, just in a very critical, theoretical college course kind of way, really critically broke down gender, uh, patriarchal systems, power structures, ways that patriarchal uh, pressures and institutions could be hurtful for other groups in society, as well as ways that those uh, pressures and guy code rules could also be problematic for boys and men. And for me at that point, it was like, like that was it, like that was it, like that was the stuff during high school that wasn't feeling good. And I actually got upset. And, and, you know, I remember like there was an internal process of like, I'm like 20. Why am I being educated on this stuff for the first time right now? Right. Like it would have been so helpful if somebody had just helped me understand these pressures and societal forces that are powerful and influential, but also can be limiting and harmful. Um, When I was younger, like I really could have used it then. But then ultimately that led to me um, as I pursued clinical psychology, really wanting my clinical psychology focus to be boys and men's mental health. Um, And as I got into the field, really realizing, you know what, a lot more has been done on men and men's well-being. It's an easier population to access if you're doing research. But this all starts with boys. And so that's why I wanted to focus more on boys and and why a lot of my research, which has been so meaningful, has actually been conversations and, and qualitative work with boys. So maybe that's a perfect segue, Chris, into what I want to explore with you first. And that's this whole idea of why this conversation is important in current times. Maybe an obvious question, but I think it's a good place to start. What are we seeing in boys currently that makes this conversation um, particularly helpful at this juncture in history? It is particularly helpful and important right now. And I think as as my dad, who is, uh, I think he's 70, right? He would probably attest that he also could have really used this conversation. And, and so... I think it's a conversation that is long overdue and that's needed to happen for a long time. And so, you know, with that in mind, what what we see with boys today, right? And and not all boys, because it's really important to acknowledge that boys as a group are diverse, right? And certainly in the IBSC community, right, you walk through any of those schools and there are lots of different activities being done. Um, right. Some of them might have a more formal dress code. Right. But those those boys, you know, some of them are still latching on on to very creative, unique ways of even trying to flex that dress code. Right. Or, in, you know, kind of away from school, dressing very uniquely and stylishly. Right. Or others are conforming more. Um, but there's lots of diversity. There are lots of eways of being a guy um, beyond the traditional rules and norms, um, you know, that get, get put forth by society more. Um, and so I want to just say that because it's important to acknowledge. And, and I think um, with the issues that w- we can see lots of boys and men struggle with, not all boys and men have those issues, right? And, and there are 
which, which gets interesting, right, for the boys who, in spite of getting messages about big boys don't cry, suck it up, be a man, to much more explicit, right, insults that can get used as boys get older, homophobic and misogynistic insults, um, there are boys who still lead with their emotions and have very rich uh, emotional lives in spite of that social pressure to keep it more to themselves. But it really is, and, and you know, I'm part of the Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. And one of the things that has been established in the research is, you know, a lot of the research is on men, but, but really for boys and men who struggle more with these things, you know, it's the boys and men who are more rigidly adhering. Right. And so if we took a masculine and norm scale, it's the ones who have, you know, kind of the extreme adherence level scores. Right. And for those boys and men, what we're worried about with them are things like emotional restriction. Right. Not having people that they can be vulnerable with. Right. Not having trusted people whom they can share secrets with or connect with when they're having a tougher time, feeling like they have to keep that stuff to themselves, which can have all sorts of problematic psychological, behavioral, emotional outcomes. Um, you know, the other thing I really worry about and others worry about too is just boys feeling like they have to pretend, um, doing things that don't feel true uh, to themselves, right? Whether that is you know, posturing around, you know, player attitude and hypersexuality, um, talking about girls and women in disparaging ways, which I certainly did in high school because that's what was being done, right? That's how I was socialized. That's how a lot of the boys uh, in my school, which was a private uh, co-ed boarding school, um, were talking and joking around, Right. So I can look back on that stuff more critically now. Ultimately, you know, my, my goal with, you know, the work I've done, but also just for boys in general and really boys today is uh, being able to be more true to themselves. Right. So um, some of the big social problems and concerns that we're aware of with violence and aggression. Right. Suicide completion rate is is one that is really important to make note of. And obviously, that's not relevant for a lot of boys, but it's relevant for enough where when we look at gender differences with suicide completion rate in about middle of adolescence, that goes up to a ratio of four to one, right? So boys are, are completing suicide four times as much as girls, right? Girls attempt more, but boys complete at a much higher rate. And then that, that ratio pretty much continues at that level through adulthood into old age, right? When it peaks, peaks again. I'm, uh, I'm struck by how you mentioned the emotional lives of boys and um, that there are some boys who are able to break out of that kind of traditional masculine mold and, and be more in touch with their emotional selves. And what struck me as you said that is, is we have to acknowledge that all the boys in our communities have emotional lives and those that who are masking or hiding need as much supports as those who present in in ways that could be considered emotional and it's it's about being intentional as a as an educator and as a school about acknowledging that all boys need to understand that they are emotional beings oh yeah gosh and you i mean especially i mean throughout you know middle high school middle and high school and before but also just think about that puberty time Right when so much is going on biologically and, and chemically that's changing, yeah, all boys need it. Um, 
And we know from research that's being done, which is incredible research, that just in their very early period of development, um, some research has found that boys actually cry and express distress more often than baby girls. Right. And so they're early on on a trajectory where they're showing more vulnerable, difficult, upset emotions. Um, And then we also know from Niobe Way's research on urban boys specifically looking at, um, well, it's I mean, it's it's longitudinal work. But, you know, around the ages of five to six through 10 to 12, boys are very vulnerable in how they describe their friendships and talking about love um, and, and kind of talking about secrets and having people you can kind of really be connected with and real with and uh, who know stuff about you that other people don't in terms of their close friends. And then with these the same cohort of boys, Dr. Way's research has shown that when they get to high school, that more emotion-vulnerable talk that they did about their friends when they were younger changes, and they're more insults and posturing and and whatnot. And I, I suppose that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about now is is what is framed as the guy code. But, but before we get that get to that, I, I loved in your workbook you wrote a letter to teen guys. <laughs> I loved that letter, um, and you write. You write this, what, what is this constant, the pressure to prove ourselves as guys all about? You go on to say that while you couldn't have answered this question at their age, you now know that the constant pressure many guys experience to prove that they belong and are man enough comes from something called the guy code, which is a term coined by, by sociologist Michael Kimmel. And so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, Chris, when speaking with boys as educators of boys, how do we unpack with them what the sky code is and the messages and rules that society place on them? Well, and let me just say too, um, the publisher, New Harbinger, wanted me to also have up front a letter to parents and a letter to educators, right? Those letters that are in the appendix. But I was really firm that it was only going to be the letter to teen boys because this book is for them. And we've got a lot of resources that have been written for parents and educators about boys. But there's really not something for boys themselves, right? That's trying to speak to them about this stuff. Surprisingly, in my experience, the most important thing with these conversations is just having them, just making space for them. Boys boys recognize the guy code pressures right away. When you talk about pressure to be tough, pressure to keep emotions to yourself, uh, pressure to prove yourself heterosexually with girls to be a, pl- I mean, that's not foreign content to boys. And, and, and Dr. Michael Thompson referred to this in his foreword, like, like this is the air that they breathe and boys recognize this. I think what is so unique is when adults or school folks or wonderful teachers, administrators set aside time to ask boys what they think about these pressures, how these pressures work for them. Are there certain pressures that don't work um, where it maybe makes sense to think about a different approach, to not to have to conform to everything? Um, And so I think because these conversations don't happen, frequently for boys. There can be awkward silences. You know, there can be boys sitting there kind of fidgeting, not knowing what the heck to say. And certainly 
thinking about the school context uh, and all boys schools as educators and and parents and mentors, coaches, et cetera, right? Sometimes we'll talk to, to kids, boys, and we'll have no idea if what we're saying is having any sort of an, an effect or impact or influence. And I think the most important thing that we can do uh, is say the things uh, and, and share and open up doors to have these types of explorations. Because even when kids aren't showing us that they're listening, a lot of times they are. And we can realize after the fact. And I think if boys in general have enough opportunities to critically think about masculinity for themselves more in the teachings and the messages, they'll, they'll be more inclined to question and push back when that's appropriate for them. And I want to just emphasize that part when that's appropriate for them, because I really did not want this to be a prescriptive workbook uh, or endeavor, right? I wanted this to be um, something that would support boys to critically explore for themselves, right? And, and to see where they got at the end of the journey, whether that's no change, whether that's some changes, whether that's lots of changes, but most importantly, to go through the journey and to have that opportunity to, to think about this stuff more. I suppose it's about normalizing these conversations in our school spaces, isn't it? You know, the more, the more you do it, the more used to those conversations boys will become. And I think that awkwardness, awkwardness you mentioned will, will dissipate over time if we are actually having regular engagements with boys. Yeah. And, and in some ways, I mean, educators are in such an important position because of how much time they spend with, uh, our kids, right? And I know some of your schools are boarding schools, right? And they spend even more time. I mean, they're like an integral to helping to raise these boys developmentally. Um, but I think educators are also so well positioned in some ways because they're used to that awkwardness. They're used to silences in their classrooms uh, or kids not really having much to say and being able to stick with that, right? Or, or find ways to uh, you know, help whatever the difficult topic is be more accessible. And and one of the ways to do that is by being vulnerable uh, ourselves with boys, right? And and especially coming from other men, right? Uh, modeling that vulnerability. Um, boys, right? I mean, I've, I've heard the argument that it's really not appropriate to start educating kids on gender-related stuff in elementary school and in those early ages, but kids are already, you know, learning these socially based teachings. And so they're educating one another anytime there's a no girls allowed game or a don't be a girl or that's for sissies. Right. So they're already starting that that peer based gender socialization education process based on what they've absorbed from society about how guys should be. And so I think it's really important for adults to be getting in there. I mean, if we were having this conversation a number of years ago, um, Chris, we would have probably had a very binary view of of gender and gender identity. Um, as we as we consider that and helping boys engage with society's gender rules and the boxes these rules create, um, how how can we help boys? Um, wrestle with some of those issues and tensions that they face, you know, if the trying to fit in and yet feeling like they don't necessarily identify with a lot of the guy code. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really 
tough, difficult question because when you, not all the time, but a lot of the times when you don't fit in growing up, there can be painful, hard consequences to that. Right? There, there can be social punishment. There can be exclusion. Right? At the worst, there can be bullying. Right? There can be made to feel like there's something wrong with you. That's why I do have parts of the workbook that include just exercises and reflective processes for boys that if they decide to push back more directly and take more of a stand against masculinity pressures that aren't uh, feeling good, ways that they might do it and being able to think through that, while also giving permission that you might decide there are times or lots of times when you really don't want to push back because of social pressure or social consequences. And so I think the most important thing is that boys have the awareness and then can go through a thoughtful process for deciding for themselves, what stands do I want to take? If any, what stands might I not want to take because it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't feel safe uh, or it would just make life too difficult. And then most importantly, having adults and mentors in their corner uh, and ideally other kids, but, but who, you know, support these boys for who they are and who appreciate and validate them. So they're not uh, left on their own. Um, I also just think if you bring something like a gender-based education, because it is, right, it's, it's a social process, right? If, if you bring that into the schools earlier um, and educate kids on the gender binary, as I try to do in my book, and the gender spectrum, I think that will contribute to more openness, I think when somebody really understands that like gender is something that we've created and these rules actually are not the same gender rules as if we looked at the Middle Ages or centuries in between, but, but there have been uh, big fluctuations and, and shifts in how gender gets constructed, I think then the gender spectrum and other identities start to make more sense. Like, oh, it makes sense that like not everyone would, would just neatly fit inside this box and actually, maybe there are parts of me, even though I identify as a guy, that don't really fit inside this box. And so I can also understand how maybe for some even people who identify as guys, most of this stuff doesn't work for them because we're all kind of unique and complicated in spite of what society tries to convince us of. And actually, I must say, that's the one thing I really loved about your work with us, thinking, man, I wish I'd have had this as a teenager or preteen to work through. But uh, I think the fact that you give boys the opportunity to figure things out for themselves. You know, boys, have, your, your workbook gives boys agency to reflect on, on, on a whole host of things um, and where they stand on those things. So uh, I really appreciated, appreciated that. So I, I want to end this interview just with, with highlighting some, some of the aspects of, of, of your workbook. And I do just want to say for those of you listening, I will, um, link to Chris's work um, in the episode notes, so be sure to check it out. But Chris, your your masculinity workbook for for teens, uh, I'd love you to highlight um, just how this amazing resource that you've developed might help boys discover what being a guy means to them, and maybe being able to break out of the box of the guy code. The workbook is broken into three sections. And before getting into more direct, intensive guy code rule exploration, the first two chapters are really just focused on uh, gender-based education 
an education on simple gender basics 101 stuff. What is the difference between gender versus sex? What is the gender spectrum? Like go to the appendix to see, learn about other gender spectrum identities. You know, experiential uh, exercises mixed in. Right. So like as as you maybe already knew or as you know, you're learning from this workbook, right? What are gender teachings that you're aware of that are out there for girls versus boys? And then chapter two then really goes in a more focused way into masculine gender socialization, policing of masculinity, which is just a, a jargony word for when your masculinity gets policed, when you get the message that you're doing something that's out of line based on on the rules. And so the beginning part is really just trying to expand boys' awareness about what gender is, how society's gender socialization pressures work, and then starting to think for themselves, who have some of my influences been? What messages have I gotten? Which ones have really resonated? Which ones have maybe not felt as good or brought up difficult emotions? And then it's the middle part of the book, part two, that really goes into uh, each of the gender rules. Guys should hide difficult emotions, um, be tough at all times. Guys should be players. Guys should call the shots and be alphas. Guys should play sports. And then the, the six of those guy code rule chapters, guys shouldn't be like those other groups, right? Others in quotes. I mean, those other groups really are identified as gay people uh, and women. Um, is, is kind of where that pressure to distance comes from. And then recognizing, and, and I think this is also something that has, has changed, right? Recognizing that culture and intersectionality and cultural identities and whether you identify with coming from higher status groups versus lower status groups um, is, is a really important part of identity development. And... Um, in a developmentally appropriate way, you know, kids kind of moving towards adulthood, learning more about themselves uh, and understanding more about influences and understanding if there have been aspects of their cultural upbringing that didn't feel as good versus that they really resonate with versus if you're a marginalized boy from, you know, a lower class background, a lower SES background, or from a, a marginalized racial group or a marginalized sexual orientation group, et cetera, right? What do, what do these messages mean for you and how are they maybe a little bit more complicated, right? Or a little bit more different if right off the bat, because of a lower social status, you already feel like you're at a disadvantage or it's harder to show power or it's harder to show toughness. And so uh, in part three, there is a chapter focused on cultural exploration and masculinity and, and identity development. And then the final chapter is really a wrap up um, to kind of, help the boy identify and solidify things that he's learned about himself. And as I said, that literally could be, nope, like I'm good to go. This is all working for me or these specific things aren't working for me. You know, the, the misogynistic stuff, the homophobic stuff really isn't working. The player stuff isn't working. Right. But, but the toughness thing is working. And I also recognize that I can't do it all the time or don't need to do it all the time. And I've really identified that I've got these three close friends who I can be more emotionally vulnerable with. Um, but I'm going to hide it with those other kids because it's not going to go over well. Right. It's, it's going to be a bit different for each one. The other thing, each reader, the other thing I'll just say, though, what's kind of in addition to that structure, you know, as you would have read, Bruce, throughout the book, they're words of boys. And so these are teen boys' voices of all different uh, cultural backgrounds who I've talked to reflecting on the guy code, 
uh, and reflecting on these teachings. They're research moments. And so not trying to overdo it, but do wanting, wanting to identify for the reader that there's actually like a psychology of boys and men field. And we research this stuff and we ask questions about you guys. And here's some of the findings that I want to make you aware of um, in those research boxes. And then, um, you know, throughout each chapter are activities and going deeper exercises. And so they're reading parts, they're parts where I'm self-reflective, but most importantly, they're parts where more experientially boys can think about each of these issues for themselves and, and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I think that's what I love is the interactivity of it. You know, it's not just the text for boys to read, but there's a lot of doing and reflecting and, and the way you've structured those exercises and the, the way you've phrased those questions, I, I just find will elicit the kind of thought process we want boys to, to go through. So great job on the workbook, Chris. I think it's, I think it's a phenomenal piece. As I said, I'll link to your work in the, in the episode notes, but also thank you for this fascinating conversation. I think we could probably talk about this stuff for a whole lot longer and and we're only because we're limited by time we'll need to we'll need to wrap this up but i i really appreciate um your time and your willingness um to to be on um here with us just quickly before we leave if if there are schools who are developing programs around masculinity um or schools who would like to connect with you and your work what's the best way for people to reach out to you chris um, easiest way is through my webpage, which if you just go to www.chrisreigeluth.com, there's a way to contact me right there. I'm also currently practicing clinical psychology at Oregon Health and Science University. So that's another way you can contact me easily enough, but, but my webpage is the easiest way. So thanks. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time. It's uh, usually when I interview people who are in Pacific time, I'm in South African time. But fortunately, our time zones have aligned because I'm in La Jolla at the moment. So this has been good. Well, I'm I'm in rainy Portland, and I would much rather be in La Jolla right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Chris. I really, I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bruce, and, and this was very meaningful to be a part of, and, and so appreciative of you for doing this work and and i know having other important really important conversations focused on boys with other folks in the foreword to raigaluth's masculinity workbook for teens well-known author michael thompson writes in the last chapter of raising cain entitled what boys need dan and i wrote that we all should use boys as consultants on their own lives and as problem solvers we also urged parents and educators to teach Boys, that there are many ways to be a man. In this workbook, writes Thompson, Chris does all of those things. He is constantly asking boys to solve intellectual problems. He is asking them to reflect on their lives and choices. He touches on the highly visible elements of adolescent boy life and then takes a boy to a deeper level by asking deeper questions. How does that feel? How do you react? Does that hurt? How do other boys understand these experiences? We are grateful to Chris Rigeluth for the insights he shared with us on this podcast. One podcast episode over, as I'm sure you will agree, doesn't do the depth of his work justice. So please follow the links in our episode notes to check out the workbook for yourself. Lastly, I want to thank you again for listening to Exploring Boys Education. 
Our listenership is growing each season, and it is wonderful to see the IBSC community connecting through this medium. Until our next episode, keep on championing boys' education.